Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephen Sadman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also the director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm episodes drop every other Wednesday. Our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Each week, I will be talking to one of our four co-hosts, Aaron Gibbs von Braunschott, Vanessa Kimball, Lena Tamsetto, and Arthur Wolichinski. Thanks for listening. Today on Battle Rhythm, the co-host of the week is Erin Gibbs von Braunschott. She is from Calgary's Center on Military, Strategic, and Security Studies. Is that the right acronym? It's just about. It's uh, the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. Sorry. And Erin's timing is excellent because she's a sociologist who does policing. But I have to say that the way we do our co-host rotation has nothing to do with whatever the news of the week is. It's just what whoever is available of, of our four rotating co-hosts. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Erin. How are you doing out there in Calgary? Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's uh, very cold here this morning, actually. We have gotten into a deep freeze again with minus 18 greeting us this morning. So it's great. How about with you? Well, that cold front is going to hit Winnipeg when I go there next week, apparently. Uh, I've got a, the CSN theme on nature-induced domestic emergency operations is having their first workshop on Monday and Tuesday. And it seems like the cold front is going to be hitting Winnipeg just as I arrive because the temperatures are diving below zero Fahrenheit, which is the marker I really care about because that's when things get to be unpleasant. They do. And what great timing, actually, to have such brutal weather for that the theme of that conference. <laughs> yes. Well, the interesting thing is, is that when we t- think of emergency operations in Canada, we tend not to think of extreme cold as being one of them. We tend to think about floods, fires, ice storms. Exactly. But ice storms don't, don't happen when it's below zero, as far as I understand. Erin, given that you are someone who studied policing, have you been following the emergencies inquiry in Ottawa? I have, yes, with some interest, I have to say. There's been a, a lot of interesting conversation and information, I think, uh, provided through some of those testimonies, or I don't know if they're called testimonies exactly, but uh, the contributions of various people. And so what what did you find most striking? You know, I, I think the, the thing that I have found the most striking is of course, there's a, been a lot of volleying in terms of who was responsible for what. We knew that from the beginning. But I think the interesting thing for me these days is just trying to sort out the timing of decisions and the timing of when information arrived and, of course, what that information was. So I'm kind of curious about timing. And I'm also, of course, like everybody else, I'm sure, curious about what this security briefing was that the prime minister has referred to and what legal advice he may have had or been privy to when he made the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. That's kind of interesting to me. But the other part of the conversation to kind of external, I think, to to what's going on there is the the validity of a piece of legislation that is now just about 40 years old, if not more, and how that legislation applies in a 
you know, the situation in 2022. So I found that kind of interesting about how legislation does or does not grow. It can't really grow, but how it may or may not evolve with the times. So those three things, I guess, are kind of what I found most interesting. Yeah, I, I do think that that a lot's going to hinge on that decision by the cabinet and by Trudeau to say, well, this act said one thing, but we've had enough change in how international relations or how domestic operations work and how emergency stuff works mm-hmm. that this is something we need to do. And I'm not saying they're wrong on it. And I and Phil Agasse has a really good piece at The Line, which is an online newspaper or commentary mm-hmm. place mm-hmm. where he discusses about, well, it's ultimately the job of the executive to interpret the law and then if they interpret it badly then they get called out on it and then if they interpret it well then life is fine uh so i think that that was an interesting conversation to be had and we'll we'll see where it goes from there but given what you've been you know where where do you think the decision should lie i mean that is the the justice is going to make his call on this Rulo is going to make his call on it but do you think given all that you've heard that the emergency action have been invoked I don't know what the, how this opinion would rate in terms of the experts, but from afar, a you know, looking at this from the situation as we saw in Alberta with the Coots thing going on and uh, seeing the, the broadcast with regard to what was happening in Ottawa, it did not, from my perspective, seem like anything was happening. And there seemed from a, a distance to be some sort of immobilization. And so from my perspective, I don't I think practically it might have been the right thing. It had it was the right thing to do because nothing seemed to be really moving forward. Legally, if I was a lawyer, I would probably be arguing against myself. Uh-huh. In terms of a practical perspective, I keep trying to reflect on the people that were experiencing that in downtown Ottawa. And I'm sure by all I would guess that they would have said it was definitely the right thing to do. And Given what we were seeing, it seemed like the right thing to do. Legally speaking, it might not have been, but practically speaking, I think it was. So how's that for a fence straddling position? Yeah, I mean, the the challenge is that the emergency was that the provinces wouldn't do what their provinces are supposed to do. Exactly. And I don't think that's something the Emergencies Act took into account, that you'd have willful neglect of one's responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that wasn't anticipated, that you'd have premiers acting in bad faith, essentially. I mean, I think Doug Ford ultimately decided, wouldn't it be great if the the federal government had to wear this? Mm-hmm. both, So that way he wouldn't be responsible for it. He wouldn't upset the far right in, in, in Ontario for the election last June. So that way he wouldn't get caught up in it. They probably went along with his governing philosophy of do less. And it would allow Trudeau to be stuck with this. And that's kind of how it played out. Although I think Trudeau and ultimately got was more popular for what he did rather than less. But I mean, I, I think the domestic politics of this and really the provincial federal politics of this shows what happens when there's such a disconnect between the provinces or some of the provinces anyway, and, and the federal government. I mean, the, the strange thing is, is that Ottawa, last I checked, is in Ontario. It is. And, and so you would think that the premier of Ontario would care about what was going on in Ottawa. Yeah, well, it all comes back, I guess, to that jurisdiction 
sort of thing and who takes precedence over or which policing agency is supposed to move on these things. But clearly there was some delay and some confusion over that. So given that confusion, and I think you're right, the politics that were at play and continue to be at play, it was much easier to ensure that Trudeau took the the brunt of that decision. But I think he came across fairly well in the hearings, given the way he framed what he thought he knew or did not know. I think given what he had to work with, the decision seems reasonable. Of course, we don't know, again, about that security briefing that he supposedly had. Yeah, I, he came off really well. He did. I, th- I think that was one of the, the general perceptions of what happened last week is that Trudeau was, you know, questioned for several hours. He responded well. He didn't get too defensive. He didn't get aggressive. Uh, he didn't, wasn't too insulting to the convoy people, I suppose. Uh, that, I don't mind insulting them. And I think he carried it off. Now, one thing that Legasse and others point to is one thing about the act that worked is that it led to this inquiry. And so the concern that people might use the act willy nilly depends on how comfortable the prime minister of the day is at being in front of a commission like this. Exactly. Uh, and that might be a deterrent for to abusing it. On the other hand, I always have my own confirmation bias problem where I, I think that everybody else suffers from confirmation bias. And so you can look at this and if you're somebody else, you might go, well, you know, Trudeau can handle that. So I could too. It's, it's pretty easy. And mm-hmm. then they invoke the Emergency Act and they find out, oops, it wasn't so easy. So I, I worry a little bit about the lessons people draw from this. But speaking of lessons to be drawn from this, given that you study policing, what does this mean about policing in Canada? What does it mean when we have reports, more reports today of police leaking to the convoy people their plans? The notion that there were plans that might have been in the RCMP's pocket but the head of the RCMP didn't speak up at meetings. What do you think of this? Does he, do you think that th- this is an accurate reflection of the state of policing in Canada? And if so, should we be really concerned? I think we should be concerned. And this is, uh, I think, evidence of the lack of communication between police forces that has been, I think, you know, surfaces every once in a while, but I think is kind of a consistent thing on a daily uh, basis. Just when you were asking that question, I was reminded of Bernardo case way back when and the subsequent sexual assaults that happened because police forces weren't sharing their information about, I can't remember what he was called at that point, the uh, something rapist, Scarborough rapist. And, you know, the police forces had data on him and yet failed to share. But this is sort of like that times, well, there's no murders, obviously, but the uh, it's just, I think there's microcosms of lack of information sharing that cause serious issues. We're seeing this on a, a national scale. So I think they have to rethink their entire communication structure. They, I think this idea that the the information would be leaked to the truckers suggests that they might want to reevaluate the standards by which they allow uh, various individuals to become police officers, like the recruitment might need some overview or some reset. But I think that also, you know, it's sort of like uh, training along the way. You can't just, all the, the weight of this issue should not fall on recruits. I think there has to be some kind of training of police officers throughout and the, um, throughout their careers. And so the this idea that a threat could come from inside is, you know, perhaps if you're a, a more senior police officer, you, you know, you're used to looking at threats as coming from external more so than from within. So I think that it suggests that there should be a better training, better recruitment, better communication, 
so yeah, I guess that if they started with those three items, <laughs> that would be a good start. Yes. Obviously, I think recruitment's a problem. I mean, there's been a more open discussion about the problem of white supremacists and their ilk in the Canadian Armed Forces, than I th and the military is taking that pretty seriously, although maybe not as aggressively as, as maybe I would like or other people would like, but they're at least taking it seriously. They funded a hateful conduct network mm -hmm. to address that. I'm not sure there's been much of a discussion in Canada about who becomes a police officer in Canada and what their ties are to extremists. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we had multiple reports of police in Ottawa leaking things to the convoy people, that's troubling. And so that does speak to recruitment. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the thing that was more surprising to me, well, there's the one big surprise I've had ever since last year, which is we keep on hearing that the police can't be directed by the politicians. And it's like, well, then who directs them? Yeah. Uh, but the other thing was that you had the RCPA director, Lucky, Luki, I don't know how to pronounce her name, mm -hmm. in the room with the cabinet to discuss these matters. And she claims that she had a plan, but didn't feel it was her turn to talk. That yeah. was sort of one of the most baffling parts of the of the past few weeks. Everything else sort of played out as we expected. I don't I, I don't think much of this was terribly surprising in terms of the re the supposed revelations over the past few weeks during these hearings. I think it was good to have them to document the, the what people were thinking and how are they thinking it and mm -hmm. a lot more transparency of how things were being done at the time. But I think the biggest surprise was simply that the head of the RCMP thought her job was to sit in a corner and not speak up. Yeah, that that is a pretty appalling notion that especially in a security, uh, national security threat, as I think it was being framed at that time as well. So to not say anything, obviously, it's not good for the relationship between government and police to have that lack of communication. It puzzles me to to try to imagine what the thinking might have been at that point that you would not reveal something, you know, like, I don't know how you could see it as not your place. You are the head of the National Police Force, so that's a puzzle to me. Yeah, I would hope that she's not in the job for much longer. I would bet she probably isn't going to be. I mean, that that's the that's the thing, is if you can't direct people to do X, Y, and Z, you can mm -hmm. certainly change them if they don't do X, Y, and Z as you expect them to do so. I mean, that, that is how you exert control if you can't direct. Exactly. So that's what I would think, but we'll see if there's agreement by the government. I, I, I would assume so, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, that might be a good segue to thinking about speaking of relationships of militaries to governments in terms of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Is that a good segue, Steve? Uh, I think, it's, I think it works. I think it works. <laughs> Strangely, the Indo-Pacific strategy was unrolled on a Sunday while I was driving back from Thanksgiving in the United States. And sort of like many things, there was a sort of a Rorschach test. Those who are fans of the government were like, yeah, this is great. Those who are critics of the government think that's awful. What was sort of your reaction to it? Well, I, I, I've I read a lot about it in the past couple of days. I did find it kind of strange on a Sunday as well, I must admit. But, you know, the uh, one observation that I had read was that that there seems to be sort of inconsistent approaches and different emphases, I guess, with respect to what Anand has been saying. So I don't know if so the, the idea was that first there was an emphasis on climate related issues and then Ukraine and now the Indo-Pacific. I, I don't know if, if she's really changed course. Maybe that would be something you might be able to comment on i think i don't i think you can hold a number of orientations three at 
uh, at one time. But do you feel that this has sort of replaced those other sorts of strategies or emphasis that, that she had? Uh, that's interesting. I would say that the government should be able to think about more than one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. And I I think we saw that over the past week where, or a couple of weeks where she was at the Halifax International Security Forum and she was speaking about the war in Ukraine. I think that she's been spending a lot of time talking about NORAD modernization. And this this particular aspect, the Indo-Pacific stuff, has been long in, in discussion. And compared to these other things, she has a less of a piece of it than compared to these other things. I mean, there's a, there is a military piece to it, but it's not, not entirely a military thing, whereas the Latvia thing, the Ukraine thing is almost entirely a military. Yeah. So I, I think criticizing her for thinking about three things at once is, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think the questions to ask about the, the Indo-Pacific strategy is, is it a strategy? Is it fully resourced? What are the impact of, of it, of having this strategy on other things? Like our shared pal and co-director of the CDSN, Andrew Sharon, tweeted out that she was concerned that this focus on the Pacific might mean moving resources away from NORAD and continental defense. Right. And then I saw Mike Day commenting about this on Twitter as well, about is this new money or is this not new money? And if it's new money, then while there's still trade-offs being made between this and other priorities, it's less about, oh, you're doing this, which means you can't do that or you're doing less of that. And so we're going to be having more ships spending time sailing in the Pacific. That means there'll be less ships because we have a finite number of ships sailing in the Baltics. Uh, one of the responses to the Baltic, the, to the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine in 2014 with Crimea was to have a regular patrol of a NATO fleet in the Baltic Sea and Canada participated in that. Mm-hmm. Right now, there are no Canadian ships in that uh, NATO fleet because they've been deployed to go through the Taiwan Strait and show our support for the status quo in Taiwan and for the freedom of navigation. And so we can't do both of those things at once. Mm -hmm. So there's a practical thing is we only have so many planes, ships, and people, and we have less people than we usually do because we're in a personnel shortage. But it seems to me that a division of labor where the army is doing most of the training and doing most of the Latvia deployment and the Air Force is doing most of the NORAD stuff and the Navy is doing most of the Indo-Pacific stuff is not an irrational division of labor amongst the, the various elements of the military. The big question is, is whether money being spent on new stuff means there's less money elsewhere. And so I've asked the folks in government to answer that question and we'll see if they ever get back to me on that but i think that's that's the question du jour yeah Uh, so it's basically about capacity i I think sort of that's what i'm getting from what you're talking about there is that whether there is capacity to do all of these things but trying to sort out with the capacity that you do have what resources are going to go where but here's a question i have for you what makes a good ally you know what what is evidence of a good ally i don't know what you know if what do you think are you saying what makes canada a good ally or who are the good allies for us to work with in the pacific well what make what would make canada a good ally i guess that's the way i'm thinking of it first but i know that was some of the stuff that i was reading here is like so this this decision this indo-pacific strategy brings us more in line with our allies yes but I would like to know in order to be a good ally, do you have to be in line or what, like what makes a good ally? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And part of it is, is how much of the Indo-Pacific strategy should be driven by our desire to be a good ally. Exactly. 
and then how much of it is actually meets that goal. And I think, you know, people might say, well, we should do what we want in the world and, and focus less on our allies. And I think there's something to that. However, if we want to make a dent and have an influence in the Indo-Pacific, we have to work with allies because it's just too big of an environment for us to be able to make a difference on our own. Mm -hmm. And we don't happen to have any territory in the far end of the Indo-Pacific. So it's not like we can base things on, you know, Canada West. Right. So in order for us to accomplish whatever goals we want, we have to coordinate with allies. So that's step one. Uh, The step two is, does this state strategy make us a good ally or a better ally or a suitable ally mm-hmm. and i think that depends on a couple of different things one is the substance of the direction of Canadian foreign policy and the other is on are we putting up enough so in terms of direction i think this document does mesh with the americans and with our allies in the pacific in that it more clearly states that china is the threat yeah and there's a lot less hemming and hawing about that. There's a lot less softened, you know, they've taken all the softeners away from it. It's pretty direct. And that puts us on the same page as the US and Australia and Japan. I'm not so sure about South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know exactly what South Korea's stance is these days on on, uh, on China. But it makes us more compatible with our allies because we're no longer trying to have it both ways as much as we used to. And you know, that goes along with the Huawei decision. It goes, you know, our changes in, in our investment strategy or investment oversight. So that way we don't have China buying up all of our mineral companies and mining and all that sort of stuff. I think that makes us all seen as more reliable. And not only seen as more reliable, it makes us more reliable if we actually do the things that we promise. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important. Is it enough? Are these dollars enough? I don't know, but I also don't know what our allies expect. I don't know what their standard of what is a significant spending commitment versus what is not. I do think having two or three frigates ply the waters between Taiwan and China is exactly what the Taiwan wants. It's exactly what Japan wants. It's exactly what the United States wants. Mm-hmm. The United States doesn't send 45 ships in between those the, in the strait either. They just send enough to show that there's a... That these are international waters. Now, the irony, of course, is that Canada's stance on international waters varies depending on which waters we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I think this, you know, making that commitment, the language in it about Taiwan, the language in it about Japan and South Korea, maybe there's less language than there about Australia. Uh, the language in there about Japan and, and South Korea makes sense to me. I think, you know, maybe it's because, you know, the Japanese have been so friendly to me in bringing me over and providing access for my research. But I do think that. Japan has the most similar interests to our own. And the reality is that no ally is going to have completely identical interests with us. Right. And so the question is, is who has the greatest overlap and whatever points of tension there are, how do you manage them so that they don't become problematic? And I think with Japan, with Australia, we have, with this document, we've reduced some of the points of tension and created more commonalities, which should make things better, if not easy. Yeah, I I wonder how this will be viewed by China. I listened to an interesting presentation from a Chinese historian, and he had indicated that the one thing that is clear is that China despises weakness. And if this, you know, this, if this strategy suggests that we are showing strength and strength with allies, if that will change the way they 
they view Canada and what Canada is up to. I suppose it it pretty much has to now that there's an actual strategy beyond a trade mission or a trade commission. So what are your thoughts in terms of how China will view this? I don't know. Again, they might think that it's not that much money. There's not that much ships. Does it compare to their Navy? Mm-hmm. But I, I do think this is not what they wanted, right? They didn't want Canada to line up so closely with the United States, to line up so closely with Japan. Mm-hmm. I think they were operating under the theory. A common theory almost always proved wrong from Kaiser Wilhelm to Putin to now Z that if you threaten people enough, they'll cave in. Right. And the reality of international relations is mostly countries react against threats by balancing against them. They don't cave in. And I think that the Chinese thought by threatening in Canada repeatedly that Canada would be ambivalent. They thought maybe the liberals would be softer on them. And now mm-hmm. they're looking at this, the statement. I'm sure they're they're looking at this document and going, wait, this is not what we we're looking for. We were looking yeah. for them to like leave out Taiwan. We were looking for them to, you know, not spend that much money on this. You know, I, I don't think the Chinese are pleased by this document. And this is just part of a larger pattern of antagonism that we're seeing. You know, we saw the uh, confront Trudeau at the G20. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't think our relationship with China is going to get better. I don't think they're going to learn from this that perhaps being threatening doesn't pay off. I'll always cite the meeting I had with Chinese diplomats a couple of years ago before the pandemic, but after they had taken the two Michaels, I had two Chinese diplomats in my office and they were saying, how do we have better relationships with your country? And I was like, release the two Michaels. They're like, besides that. And I'm like, there's no besides that. And then the way they handled that with, you know, the Huawei executive having a, you know, a, a ticker tape parade or the equivalent when she returned home and everything else the Chinese, Chinese government has done uh, has cemented in Canada the need to respond towards China and rather than bending towards their will to resist them and to support China's opponents in the region, whether it's India, Taiwan, or Japan and South Korea. So this is not what the Chinese wanted. No, no, I'm sure it isn't. Interesting that they, uh, about your conversation, that that was uh, the only, the only thing they seemed unwilling to want to do at that point. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because part of the reason that Trudeau had to push back. You know, what was Trudeau pushing back on? It was about election interference, mm-hmm. right? And it's become clear that that the government's known about the Chinese interfering in the Canadian elections. He not only confronted Z about it, he he then gave a readout from the summit, and then Z got upset that we gave a readout. It's like we do this all the time, and maybe our readout was a little more negative. But guess what? You guys are being a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you don't want to have negative readouts, don't interfere in our domestic politics and don't threaten us you know if they want to have a nice smooth flow of, of relations then they have to do their side of it but it's interesting because this is all happening at a time where the document i don't think emphasized and potentially enough uh, the human rights uh challenges in china i think it mentions it somewhat but it, it, i probably didn't get as much play as, as i thought it might mm-hmm. i'll have to read it, the document again but we are now in a situation where there's yet more human rights drama in China, with the protests over the zero COVID policy leading to calls for democracy in China. Mm-hmm. How do you react to these events in China? You and I are both not experts on the domestic politics of China, but we've seen this before. So I'm curious as to 
What yeah, we we have seen it before. You know, the I think the the last major protest, big protests in China were the Tiananmen uh, protests. But I think this is kind of interesting. I think that China has, you know, this zero COVID thing is unsustainable. So they are going to have to figure that out. But it's interesting to note if the last big demonstration was that long ago. So now in 2022, we have all of the elements of communication working for protesters as well. So the ability to organize is so much different than it, it had been previously. So there's, but the, the the fact that these were protests going on in multiple places suggests that there's a some high level of organization, but also high frustration on the part of the individuals who are participating. I'm a little bit concerned. I think many of us who do uh, have our eye on the human rights issues, the, the a recent article that I was reading just this morning is talking about how the police are trying to locate all of the people that are uh, participating. But, you know, there is technology now that can help you identify people in crowds and that kind of thing. So I think the uh, the threat to the protesters is is probably as great as it's ever been. So I think that it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. But I think there's uh, human rights issues with regard to how the, the potential protesters will be or the, the protesters will potentially be treated. Yeah, I'm really worried about that. Really, really worried about what's going to happen next because the protesters have gone from protesting a policy to protesting the regime. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a, a pretty pretty big red line for, for the Communist Party of China. It is. And it doesn't appear that uh, the Chinese government takes well to criticism and on a national level. And the the fact that we're getting these images, I'm sure, is very worrisome to the government there. I hope that there's, you know, the facial recognition technology and that sort of thing is not going to be employed in in this particular instance, but I'm sure it will be. They've used it uh, at other times. So I think the like I think the global community is going to have to look out for if we ever hear about them again, and certainly uh, I hope we see them again, but I th- I think it's very worrisome. Yeah. You know, who knows what's going to happen between the time when we chat about this and tomorrow when the, the, po- the episode, our episode gets posted online. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am worried because the last, uh, we both have bad, very bad memories of the last time this happened. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, caught in the difficult position of wanting these people to to push and protest, but we worry about what's going to happen to them. Exactly. Okay. I think we've reached the end of our time today. It's always a pleasure hanging out with you, Erin. I look forward to visiting Calgary in February, certainly March, maybe. There's a workshop that you guys are running in February that I'm attending. That's true. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry that you're not going to be here for this year's year ahead. This is my chance to plug the year ahead on December mm-hmm. 9th at the War Museum. We still have tickets to sell. Uh, we have panels on learning from the war in Ukraine on Canadian civil military relations, which is about the surveys that your colleague JC and others have been doing and analyzing a panel on xenophobia and national security. Mm. So it's all online. And if anybody has any questions about it, they can reach out to me or my team here at CDSNHQ about that. So before we go, I'd also like to preview the, the interview. We have Peter Kazarak who wrote a book on the Canadian Army and its evolution uh, over uh, 1950 to 2000. I learned a lot from this book. He he worked in the Office of the Auditor General, so I also talked with him a bit about 
the need from ombudsman or an inspector general and things like that. It was a really great conversation. So I wanted to highlight that. And uh, Aaron, good luck with the onset of winter. I'm sorry that you're cold. I will be very cold next week when I'm in Winnipeg. Yes. Well, thanks so much, Steve. I'm sure that we will still have winter when you come in February and hopefully the skiing will be good at that point too. I certainly hope so. Uh, Always a pleasure. Yes. Thanks so much, Steve. On today's Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Peter Kasharak, who wrote an excellent book called A National Force, The Evolution of Canada's Army, 1950 to 2000. And I thought I'd have him on the podcast because I have lots of questions for him about what would he write if he was writing a book today. But before I do that, Peter, tell us a little bit about the background you had when you got started in writing the book. and Why did you write the book in the first place? I had a typical graduate education, so my knowledge of the Canadian military stopped sometime around the, the Korean War. Post-graduation, I worked for a number of years for National Defense, and then mostly for the Auditor Office of the Auditor General, led the defense and national security portfolios. And I had a lot of time understanding where the Army was coming from in my work life. So when I retired, I decided I'd go back and try to fill in that gap. And eventually, it became the book. And so you wrote this book, and the essential take-home message of the book is? The essential take-home message of the book is that the Army is a product of its British heritage, that it got all its DNA from the British Army, and more importantly, probably a a version of the mid-Victorian British Army. And it internalized those values, those management styles, and it clung to them tenaciously throughout the last part of the 20th century, from 1950 to Somalia. And it caused huge problems in its relationship to Canadian society and huge problem in its ability to do what I would call the higher levels of defense management, strategy management, development of doctrine. I mean, it just lacked the capacity. I mean, the, the metropolitan power would, would have provided all that during colonial times. And it just never developed those systems. And it, then when it had to, it didn't do especially well. So that then caused a huge rupture post-unification. Unification itself was not atom bomb or the neutron bomb to the army. It was what came afterwards, which was trying to accommodate civilian concepts of what was important in defense, changes in civilian society, and the need to just assimilate a large level of new technology that just ruptured the civil-military relation for 20 years. And it really didn't get fixed until Minister Young fixed it, at least tried to fix it post-Somalia. And the the struggle I had with your book was that the post uh, you know, the Somalia affair and the reactions were so important. But your book ends in 2000. And so I wondered how you would think about civilian control of the military and particularly how the army was doing in the aftermath of Somalia, because a lot of those reverberations didn't really hit until the 2000s. Well, no, those reverberations carried on into the 2010s and even even beyond. I mean, what happens, of course, is that the British concept was a, a officership based on character, not knowledge. And uh-huh. so there was no degree to officer corps. And one of uh, Young's historian advisor, Jack Granitstein, wrote a paper for Young where he said we had the worst educated army in NATO. And he was right. So post-Somalia, the reforms forced on the forces, including the army, were 
uh, to have a degreed officer corps. And so that part, at least if you do a headcount, succeeded, that the officer corps is much better educated than it was before. And I would think that it's more than just a numbers game. There was more than just pencil whipping the mm -hmm. education for education complete form. We have a real growth in education. On the other hand, the model of a heroic uh, a warrior model that comes along with uh, British regimentalism is still with us. And it's still with us, has had some bad effects, and uh, certainly is now being in terms of management of diversity, sexual harassment issues, all those things have yet to be resolved culturally in the Army. Even others like Alan Akros has argued that there has been reversion back, that the Afghanistan war has caused the Army to go back to looking more at combat experience than, uh, than knowledge in uh, making key senior appointments. I don't think Alan's got any numbers on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a sort of an anecdotal comment, but I think there's something to it. Well, certainly, if you take a look at the folks who were at the very top of the Canadian Army, the last 10 years or so, you had a series of, of chiefs of, of defense staff who either served in Afghanistan or Iraq between Hillier and then Mantunchuk and Vance. Lawson was an abnormality for a variety of reasons. And so, and so that run were people who had serious combat experience one way or another. And uh, I guess the question is then, does that reflect also the people immediately below them? But it did seem that when I, I had interviewed a bunch of the folks who commanded in Afghanistan, and most of the folks I had interviewed, you know, kept on climbing. Uh, so if you, you know, command in Afghanistan was mm -hmm. a key stepping stone for becoming head of CEFCOM or what what was CEFCOM and now CJOC, what, you know, becoming the, uh, uh, chief of the defense staff, becoming head of the army and so forth. Uh, so it, would, it was definitely something that accelerated people's careers. And that wouldn't be that surprising. But I guess the question for me is, what are the strange things to see in, the, in your book or something that I guess is something that we're, we're really grasping now is that how much of the regulation of what the military does is left in the hands of the military. In your book, you make reference to some theoretical constructs, including principal agent theory. And one of the things that always struck me when I moved to Canada was how the Canadian military, the Army, but also the Air Force and Navy, are very much the ideal that Sam Huntington was talking about, about the whole idea of they are left up to their own devices and they're just told where to go. But how they do it, how they manage themselves was was largely uh, an intra-military thing with a few key seismic moments in time where the civilians did monkey around, such as unification, such as Somalia affair. But in the rest of Canadian history, at least as, as far as I can tell, uh, and you can tell me much better, the civilians have largely stayed out of it and the military largely pushed their own preferences, which I think your book documents pretty well, that, every, that the civilians wanted to get, you know, change the alignment of forces in Europe and change how much money was being spent, and the military just kept doing what it wanted to do. This plays out to a couple of problems, I think, that, that still exist. One is the Canadian military really believes in sort of a Huntingtonian functionalism, that there are some areas that are innately supposed to be left alone to the military to decide, and personnel policy is one of them. I, I think if you look at the record, you'll see that civil society, not necessarily the government, very often it's parliament, it's other institutions like the Canadian Human Rights Commission, but the courts, all have forced equity and diversity issues on the military, especially the employment of women. I mean, this is all revolved around the employment of women. 
And starting right with the Canadian Human Rights Act, the military has been fighting this rear guard action that, uh, you know, study after experiment after study, they have uh, tried to fend this off and they've lost. And Canadian society has said, you know, you aren't going to be able to resist this change. We insist that you accept our values regarding diversity in the employment of women, period. And the battle's still going on, obviously, but it very much is a rear guard action by uh, by the traditionalists in the military. The other issue, which I think you put your finger on, is if we go back to Peter Fever's model that the civilians are the principals and the military are the agents. The military has been fairly critical over a long period of time over what it feels has been the abdication by the principal to do its job. And I think they have a point. Part of it is the fact that their expectations regarding the clarity of guiding policy that they're going to receive, I think are excessive. That given the fact that Canadian security policy is a diplomatic, economic, internal domestic balancing act, there's going to be a lot of ambiguity involved in the direction the military receives. And so getting crystal clear direction uh, that they can, can understand has been difficult. The other thing is, is that the military has very often said, sometimes explicitly, in, in the case of the 1971 white paper, that they didn't get any usable policy direction. What they really mean is, we got some, but we don't like it. And so we're going to drag our feet. But I think overall, when you look at the direction that the civilians have provided, it has been spotty not too good. And instances where it has been very clear, uh, it sometimes has caused big disruptions. I mean, we had 27 ministers in the 50-year period that my book covered. That's a lot. And only two of those ministers, Paul Hellyer and Perrin Beattie, had what I would call big ideas that they wanted to institute. And their ideas were disruptive, and in both cases, completely unaffordable, <laughs> as well as as well as la really lacking core cabinet uh, support. I mean, in both cases, cabinets sort of looked at what the ministers proposed and said, "Oh, yeah, great minister, that's that's wonderful." But when it came to, down to brass tacks, it was a lot of sucking on teeth. Oh, do we really want to have a military that looks like that? And we certainly don't want to pay for it. So that then, I think, is a fair criticism going back to the civilian leadership. The kind of direction the military has received varied over time, and a lot of times it just hasn't been very helpful. Well, the thing about principal agent theory is it, it should take both the, the principals and the agents seriously as both having agency and both being jointly responsible for the, the relationship. And so one of the things that has struck me in my conversations with Canadian officers, including retired ones, including fairly progressive retired ones, is their notion that the civilians that count are the prime minister and the defense minister, and that's the end of the story. And that the folks who work in D&D, you know, the, under that deputy minister, the deputy minister is not in the chain of command, therefore whatever they have to say is pretty much irrelevant. And we have some evidence of that of late because uh, we had... Jody Thomas uh, and Wayne Eyre, that is the deputy minister and the chief defense staff on the podcast last year. And Jody Thomas basically said that when the Deschamps report came around, she offered to help Vance, uh, then, then chief of defense staff Vance on how to deal with it, how to, how to implement it. And Vance told her to stay out of it. 
and so this idea that the only civilian you're supposed to listen to is the defense minister and then the prime minister by extension is well, problematic. It's a very problematic starting point because, you know, you may not get the day-to-day -day attention of the prime minister and you may not get, you know, and the defense minister may think that the, the civilians in the Department of National Defense are doing the overseeing and doing the regulating and doing the decision making. But if they're utterly discounted uh, by the military, that, that sets up a real rift in civil military relations. Well, there are two aspects to that. One is it's completely simplistic because defense ministers and prime ministers are certainly key players and the key ones that the military deal with, especially the minister, but they aren't the only ones that, that influence things. And as ministers continue to find out, unless they have cabinet support, they really aren't going to go very far. And if the minister of finance and the minister of regional economic development or whatever label he's wearing, he or she is wearing that day, aren't supportive. Uh, not to say that other ministers with regional responsibilities mm -hmm. are, are also going to weigh in. Any really significant program is just not going to happen. You know, you take a look at the national shipbuilding strategy and how it developed and why it developed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to argue that it's really been good for the military. <laughs> um, but that's politics. If you're going to spend that much money to get any kind of ship, you have to have all these other interests brought in and made to agree to sign off on it. And so just looking at your own minister and maybe at the prime minister is not going to do it. You've got to have a broader view than that. And I said there was a second issue. Oh, yes, civil service. The complaint that there's been there's rule by the civil service and the military liking to stiff arm uh, the deputy is really counterproductive when you consider what the senior civil service is. Oh. The senior civil service is a special cadre that really takes care of those top level cross-governmental links through those departments, feels the pulse of all these departments, and can inform the chief of defense staff exactly what the minefield looks like before he steps into it. A smart CDS would not stiff arm uh, a deputy who is part of that specially chosen LinkedIn cadre of senior officials with horizontal cross-governmental tentacles and also a good feel for what the politicians want. I mean, that's what the first job of a, of a deputy is to implement the minister's agenda. So pushing off the deputy is in a way by extension pushing off the minister. So this is really, to me, a counterproductive strategy. Yeah, well, it's looking back at Hillier's memoir, it was chock full of stories and complaints about bureaucrats where he was fighting with the deputy minister and the people under the deputy minister during his time. But let's let's move to more recent events, which is the Arbor report came out and it had a couple of recommendations. I'm curious uh, what you have to say about them. One is, you know, you worked in the Auditor General's office and one of the key debates while the Arbor Commission was going on and when this World Report came out was whether there was need for more oversight by some other actor. That is, should we have a super ombudsman? Should we create an inspector general? Is this all covered under the Auditor General's office? If you were given the responsibility for recommending to the Defense Minister and the Prime Minister how to change or not change the, the setup of, the, of oversight, uh, what would you recommend? Well, I mean, this is of course, one of the first levers when you have an organization that, as Peter Fever says, is shirking that you reach for is police patrol, right? Mm -hmm. uh, 
And in this case, I'm not sure that you really need any more policemen on the beat. Another one is not likely to make much of a difference and may complicate things even more. I really think that it would be more profitable to start looking at who you're putting into key positions right. in the military. I mean, this is controlled by cabinet. If they don't like the answers they're getting, they should change horses. I mean, it's as simple as that. Until you get the actual institutional leadership that's going to drive the institution in the direction you want it, having another policeman saying they aren't there yet uh, or they're not doing it, like, how helpful is that going to be? I guess I got the question I have for you is, who are these policemen you're talking about? Who do you think are the relevant overseers? I'll, well, you've got I'll... the... You've got the ombudsman, you've got the uh, Human Rights Commission, you've got the bilingualism commissioner, uh, you've got uh, the auditor general for anything that involves money or operational efficiency. You've got the parliamentary budget officer now that is starting to weigh in and, uh, if I may say so, eat the auditor general's lunch. Uh, <laughs> well, that's but... the thing is, is that you have... For money, we have plenty of oversight, right? We have the parliament budget officer, we have the auditor general. But the problem in the military, now the procurement issues are money issues. The Deschamps report not being implemented, the previous reports on the stuff are not really money issues, they're something else. The question for me, you know, I would say, well, if we had a, if we had decent parliamentary oversight, we wouldn't need any of this stuff because that would be great. But I'm in the middle of a study that shows that Canada is on the far end of, of, of the spectrum on having a relevant, empowered, engaged uh, parliamentary defense committee. So forget having, you know, forget that, though, them as overseas. They don't even think their job is oversight. And so the challenge with the Auditor General is their their job is to oversee everything, not just the military. So do they have enough capacity to constantly be a presence in the minds of military officers when they're thinking about doing stuff? Because when I think of oversight and when I think of it in terms of principal agent dynamic, the reason why we want oversight is not just to, you know, to tell people, oh, you did something wrong. Uh, you should be punished for it. It should be it should be in the heads of people before they act, so that way they know that they'll get caught, or there's a high likelihood they'll get caught if they if they shirk, if they do not, if they act in ways that they're not supposed to act. And I, I don't know if the auditor general is in the heads of the, the Canadian military. I don't think the ombudsman is in the heads of the Canadian officers. Um, I don't know if there's anybody in their heads when, when they're thinking about no. how to how to shirk or not. That's why I think that who you select as CDS is really going to drive the results that you get. I mean, I understand Auditor General is not, you're right, all of these agents are not really oversight. They're all ex post facto, which is not oversight, not in the sense that you find in the intelligence community where there's a committee that sits at arm's length and looks at anything before you do it to decide whether it's within your mandate and whether it's a smart thing to do. Well, uh, I, I'll, 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 let me just interject, which is uh, I'm not expecting to have any actors being uh, in the in the decision making loop before things happen. I, for me, the idea of oversight is is ex post facto, which can be relevant because the, if those actors have power, then they will be anticipated. That is, for instance, the United States, it's not like the U.S. Congress, the, the Armed Services Committee makes decisions for the American military. But the American military officers know if, if they screw up and Congress finds out about it, their program might get cut, uh, that they might not get promoted because uh, if you're an officer in the American military, your promotion's at a certain level, uh, Congress has something to say about it. Um, and so it's 
Congress is the head of the American military, not because of the decisions they make before the military acts, but because they know that if they misbehave, if they behave badly, if they fail, then Congress will have hearings, may have hearings, and that produces embarrassment. Well, this simply is, as I'm sure you're well aware, is just not going to happen in Canada because we don't have separations of power and because the governance of the military is still a royal prerogative. And what that boils down to is it's the prime minister and the minister that decide in parliament is an afterthought. I understand that. And that's why, although I would say that our Westminster brothers and sisters actually actually do have parliaments that do more than ours does. Uh, But you'll have to wait for my book to come out once I finish writing it. Uh, But the important point is that I was getting back to your point of how many policemen are there out there. And And it may be there are a lot of policemen, but they're not walking the beat all that often. And so the question is, you know, could we reform the ombudsman office so that they're they have they're they're more relevant, that they have more better ability to do their job? Uh, Would an inspector general change things? But I guess I guess you're on the side of that. There's already enough information coming out. It's about whether there's people making decisions about it. Yeah, that that's where I come down. I mean. Uh, I, I would love to see well, the Auditor General's ability to look at the defense portfolio is a shadow of what it was when I was there. I mean, it's as simple as that. I had a team of up to 20 auditors, and we were doing basically a report a year, and we did financially important things like capital projects on a cyclical basis every four years. I mean, there's it, it, nothing like that happening now. So the auditor general personally thinks is important. So if the if you get audit like the security world is very important, they won't spend a lot of resources on it, uh, which I feel is wrong. But I mean that's what you get when you uh, appoint somebody uh, on good behavior for ten years. <laughs> the other thing that came out of the Arbor report was uh, questions about what to do with the Royal Military College system. And given that is sort of fundamental to that question you were at, you were raising earlier, which is, well, just pick the right people when they, you know, when you get to the CDS, if they, you don't like CDS, replace them. Well, if you've got a, a system and process that weeds out or promotes certain individuals, the, the principal, that is the defense minister, the prime minister may not have many choices to make. Uh, I'm sure one factor in the minds right now of the defense minister and the minister and the prime minister when making any appointment for any office, senior officer is, are they going to, you know, get that have something reported a month after they're in office, and will I then be embarrassed by that decision given the sequence of events of the past couple of years? So the question then is: Is the Royal Military College, given your study of the history of of the Army, do you have any suggestions for for what we should do with the Royal Military College system? Well, yes, I, I think Arbor. This is a key point. I'm much more disturbed by what I hear about the behavior of. RMC cadets mm-hmm. uh, than I am about what gen- major generals did 20 years ago, right? Like that's the past one way or another. And the fact that they're now in power is maybe not perfect, but really bad behavior happened a long time ago. The RMC cadets, it's still happening. So I would think that that the time has come really doing away with RMC as it currently exists, that turn our RMC into a more uh, Sandhurst-like finishing school 
of 18 months to two years for people that have already been to city U, uh -huh. already have a civilian education, uh -huh. and now they're going to come in and uh, learn how to be uh, officers and become militarized. I mean, I, I think that, that that is probably the way to go, and anything else is just going to be tinkering at the edges. I think that Arbor has got a real point, and I think it's too bad that a lot of the commentators that uh -huh on her report said, well, the one thing you can be sure that won't happen is change to RMC. I said, well, so, you know, like it was me, that was the one thing that would happen is uh -huh. a change to RMC. Uh, but RMC is one of those, it's managed to fend off any significant change for 50 years. I mean, in the 70s, Rowley in his uh, officer development uh, report wanted to uh, change RMC and the uh, powers that be in the old boy network killed that one in the butt. And nobody's ever really been back since for second helping of that. So yeah, I think that that is a central issue is where you recruit your officers from and what their background is. Uh, and if you don't change that, you're just going to be perpetuating what you've got now. I appreciate you being uh, quite clear on that. I think the observers were right in the sense that this is the one that's most politically loaded with mo the greatest complexities that that spill over, not just into the military, but beyond the military. So it's a, it's a harder nut to crack than than some of the other mm -hmm. items in the agenda. Uh, but it's definitely cert certainly worthy of attention. I think one of the fundamental challenges is if you have some officers go to RMC and some not, then that you're already building entitlement, which then breeds abuse of power into the into the system. Uh, and unless you find other ways to reduce the sense of entitlement that some officers feel, then yeah. you're going to have a, that problem is just going to be embedded in the military for. Yeah, um, and I think that, yeah, the Ring Twisters Union is still very powerful. Sort of bumped into, uh, I was at a conference in the spring and uh, there was a, a young, very well-educated major who gave a, a, a rather nice paper and in discussion with him afterwards, he felt that he was he was now off the promotion track. That uh, and he referred specifically to his, you know, the, his regimental uh, headquarters was no longer really going to push him forward because he sort of missed an operational duty cycle. Yeah. So I said, oh, you know, like this is this is like Somalia all over again. The regimental senates are are still sticking their fingers in and pushing the selection of, of who gets promoted and who doesn't. I'm starting to see little indications like that, that uh, the informal personnel system uh -huh. that really caused Somalia is still there. It may not be as powerful as it was before, but it's still active. Would you suggest that we change the regimental system and change the structure of, of the military? Well, economy? yeah, I mean, I think that Certainly in the Army, Rowley had the right idea in 70 when he said, you know, when we when we actually go into combat, we're going in in, in combined arms teams and we need to have this very close relationship of infantry and armor. And so having the armor in one regiment and the infantry in another and two different training systems doesn't make a lot of sense. We should change it. And uh, nobody really shot him down at the time uh, in principle. 
or in on in the substance. They just said, oh, that'd be too hard to do in, in the time we've got available. And it was just pushed off. So I really think that looking at uh, a, a different organization that's uh, uh, functionally oriented towards actual combat processes would make a lot of sense. Uh, I mean, I, I think that this is one of those things that probably just politically impossible. This is like, this is even worse, even more difficult than saying that we're going to uh, turn uh, RMC into a non-degree granting officer's finishing school. Uh, uh, because not only would you have uh, the regular force regiments and all their honorary colonels and all the rest to deal with, but you'd probably have the militia lining up for their army reserve, excuse me for being old fashioned, having them uh, lined up as well, opposing this, like this is institutional death to the incumbents. So I think that it would be certainly be desirable to do it. The, the, the higher level personnel structure needs to be able to take over that the best and the brightest are really being promoted. But this is a change that I, I find it very hard to imagine. I mean, when you look back at, at, at unification, you know, the army swallowed a whole bunch of stuff. Like it swallowed the end of army headquarters, the creation of mobile command, the stripping away of some of the army branches. But what did people resign over? Monsell and Fleury to resign over the fact that the branches, the Army Corps, lost their royal names, that they were going to uh, do away with a, a whole bunch of buttons and badges that that the Army had before. And it was it was all over this stuff. I mean, Monsell, when he testified to Parliament afterwards, that, that was the focus of his testimony. So like this level of cultural change may be desirable and may even be necessary, but boy, would it be terribly difficult to do. Well, that's a, a really optimistic note to end our conversation on. Uh, uh, I really appreciate the time you had today to, to speak to me about it. I do recommend that people buy the book or at least borrow the book. I found it a really great education in, in not just the past of the Canadian military, but a real guideline, really good for guiding one to understanding where we're at today, because a lot of the dynamics that are in the book didn't disappear after Somalia. It didn't disappear in the sands of compounds of Afghanistan, that they're still quite relevant. So, Peter, thanks uh, for this. And I know that you're supposedly retired, but I know you're keeping very busy and still engaged on these issues. Uh, I, and we're, we're the better for it. So uh, thanks for your time today. Thank you.